Um, Welcome back to Sinister <laughs> Sisters. It's Sinister Sunday! <laughs> and it's my episode this week, which means we're talking about true crime! Whoop! <laughs> I'm just the sound. I am this shrimp, weekend. and this is cat. Yeah. yeah, and we are your sinister sisters, sisters. and we host this podcast. <laughs> we do. Yay. Yeah, it's my episode today, as I have already <laughs> said, and today <laughs> we are talking about the Moors murders. <sighs> this is our last episode where we have a season theme so the last episode of dv studios and then from this episode on we'll have whatever the hell i want murder wise heck yeah heck yeah so if you want to um hear a specific case then you should leave it in the case request form which is in our instagram bio which is at sinistersisters.podcast it's in the episode notes i think and you can also follow us on YouTube at Sinister Sisters Podcast, TikTok at Sinister Sisters Podcast, and you can almost also email us at SinisterSistersPod at gmail.com. Hell yeah. I think I think that is all the self-promotion. Yes. Am I missing anything? What's that? I don't think so. Oh. That's all the self-promotion. I'm not missing anything. Cool. Can you not hear me? Cool, 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 cool. I can hear you. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just think um, um, I got confused because I said, is that all the self-promotion? And you said no. <laughs> I said, yeah, I think so. Well, maybe- oh, because I said, is that all the self-promotion? Did I miss anything? Uh, and you said, no, I think that, I whatever. <laughs> I was confused. I am practically illiterate, boys, so... Boys? Communication. Yeah, I said boys. Mostly girls, actually. I was just watching this... Um, Mostly girls. TikTok, and... <laughs> she was, mm-hmm. like, doing, like, a get ready with me or whatever. And... Those are fun. And I guess a notification popped up on her phone, and she was, like, smiling at a notification from a man. I know better than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was very we do. funny we, we do. do are you watching the last of us no because i don't have crave oh because i canceled my crave, canceled your crave <laughs> and i'm too much of a cheap bitch to pay for it so vibe I honestly should... you should get it though it's good yeah I just should. to watch the last of us yeah i should and euphoria I, we also don't have netflix anymore why because netflix oh the password sharing because Netflix was like, you can't share your password. So Netflix, skinny boy's mum cancelled her subscription. <laughs> Netflix is a scam. Honestly, that's so stupid. But like, also, I get that yeah. like, oh, we need more people to buy our subscription. But what if, because it went by your IP, right? Like, that's yeah. how they knew. But like, like the password. Thing. Yeah. What if I travel for work? What if I travel for fun? Yeah. What if I Yeah. Um go and visit my parents for a weekend and then want to watch my Netflix show? 
Like, those are different IPs, but, like, it's yep. still me, you know? Yeah. What if I'm rich and bougie and I have a cottage or lake house? If you're house? rich and bougie and have a cottage and a lake house, you pay for two Netflix accounts. That's just <laughs> how it is. Baby. I remember when Netflix was $5 a month. It's, like, 17 yeah. now. You can get it for six ninety nine if you also have to watch ads. Yeah, but that's the whole point of watching Netflix is there aren't any ads. <laughs> oh, what a scam. Yeah. Pay six dollars and ninety nine cents. Well you also a have month. to watch ads with Prime. You can Prime makes you, you watch. You can ads skip the too. ads on Amazon Prime. Sometimes. They're like YouTube ads. Ugh. Like similar to that. Honestly. Yeah. And they're always for their own kind of subpar television programs. <laughs> yeah honestly it should be illegal how can you just advertise something as streaming that's ad free and then when you get people hooked right. everyone's cancelled their cable yeah. you just make it ads again yeah. I'm so sick of being they a they literally did a full 360 they're like we're gonna revolutionize cable okay Netflix you did it and then every show is on a different yeah. platform so you have to buy 12 different platforms which costs you $120 a month right and then now you have to watch ads so they thought they had us fooled yeah it's a literal scam yeah. it's a literal <laughs> scam i would not be surprised if all of the like ceos or some shit of all the streaming companies are all like in probably like when galen weston Increase the price of bread in Canada at that time. Bread prices. It was yeah. bread, wasn't it? It was, sure bread. It was bread. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that. I mean, all that's pay extra for bread. Yeah, because they were keeping them low. Actually, I don't think they were increasing them. They were keeping them. Oh. Keeping it low, so they had the monopoly on bread. Basically, they like created a false monopoly <laughs> because they own their own bakeries, so then they can bake the bread yeah. themselves, like at a pretty. D discounted rate where all the other supermarkets have to buy bread from a distributor or from the Western Foods bakeries, which are owned by Galen Weston. <laughs> yeah. What a scam. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Um, he's he's uh, has, having to talk to Senate or whatever now, right? Because he's doing some other, he's accused of some other sort of scam. Probably. Mr. He Weston. Untrustable, probably in the commercials. So. He is. He's skinny looking. Scary mm. rich men always have like pale eyes. Because they're scary like, rich why men. Why are eyes see through? They're not even blue. They're like literally see through. Clear. <laughs> like I don't know. You the devil, homie. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that was literally Vibe. a 10-minute tangent on <laughs> price fixing <laughs> and how being alive is a scam. It is a real thing, Kat. It's a real thing that is causing strife to hey, many man. a Canadian. Here I am not being able to watch The Last Especially of Us. Especially because things are just so... <laughs> strife. Yeah, right? It was even filmed in Canada. Like... Yeah. Hello. Wasn't the film like somewhere? <laughs> but weird like, also too? everything is so expensive in Canada, Alberta. That is fucking weird in Alberta. <laughs> like it was filled with like the West End. There's of the mall this or trending something. sound. Um, it was like some campus of some university or school or something. Mm. There's this trending sound on TikTok, and it's like, and I asked myself, 
how could anybody act like this or whatever? And then it's like, and then it hit me. She's from Manitoba. <laughs> and it's so funny watching a bunch of Americans call it literally Manitola or Manitoba. Because, like, what do you mean you don't know a whole ass province in the country that is your upstairs neighbor? Like, I mean, to be fair, you thought Texas and um, Florida went next to each other, so. No, that's not what I'm saying. I don't care if they know where Manitoba is, but I know that Texas and Florida are both states in America. Oh, I see. Like, they don't you know? even know that it exists. I don't. Yeah, like they don't know what a Manitoba is, which honestly, good for them. I wish I didn't know what a Manitoba was. <laughs> we should throw a little wrench Roasting into the planet today and um, tell them about none of it. Because <laughs> uh, bet you no one's ever heard of that. <laughs> ever been it to was, a Calabud? Um, it was um, accumulated into Canada in 1999. Nunavut was her? made into a territory in '99. What's it? <laughs> it's the kind of shit you learn in Canada. Yeah, I remember because it's the same year I was born. I could have sworn that when we first moved to Canada, when I had to color the Canadian map, it was all Northwest territories. <laughs> Maybe I was just getting a really shit education. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was something to do with up there is 1999. And I'm pretty sure it's Nunavut because Nunavut's the newest. Yeah. Also, if you look really closely, some of the islands up there do look like a llama. Hmm. The more you Anyways. Know. <laughs> Let's get into this episode because I think oh it's going God. to be a relatively long one. I forgot to write down um, content warnings for this again because I'm stupid. You also so just whacked the your mic really oh, hard. Oh no. Oh my goodness. I'll Poor start over. Mike. Oh, Melanie, <laughs> I really liked her. The content warnings for this episode are murder, of course. We have the murder of children, sexual assault and rape, um, mentions of domestic violence, alcoholism mm, I think that's it just like general trauma okay and mentions of war interesting okay kind of it's like mentioned very briefly but let's get into it because my iPad's at 15% oh no so the Moore's murders were a series of killings committed by Ian Brady and Myra Hindley between 1963 and 1965 in Manchester, England. The victims were children between the ages of 10 and 17, most of whom were sexually assaulted before being murdered. The name Moore's Murders comes from the fact that the bodies of several victims were buried on Saddleworth Moor. You have heard of this case before, right? Caterino? I think so. Yeah. Her name sounds cool. really familiar. 
but his name. We've actually talked about Myra Hindley before. Because she's one of three women in the United Kingdom who've been given a whole life sentence. So uh, we talked about her when we talked about Joanna Dennehy and also when we talked about Rosemary West because those are the other two. I see. That's probably why I the name's ringing a bell. Yes. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley met while working together at a chemical company in Manchester. They began a relationship and eventually started killing killing together. Their first victim was 16-year-old Pauline Reed. Um, and then they murdered four more children, but we'll get into their indivi- like the victims individually in a minute. The killings were particularly brutal and sadistic, and the details of the murders shocked the public when they were revealed during the trial. Brady and Hindley were eventually caught and sentenced to life in prison. And Hindley died in prison in 2002, while Ian Brady died in 2017. 2017. Which is, like, way... Like, he lasted for so much longer than she did, and it's wild because he was born in 1938. She was born in 1942, so there was... An age gap of a few years. A little bit, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anyways, Ian Brady's childhood was marked with instability and difficulty. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland on January 2nd, 1938, to his mother, who was called Margaret Stewart, who was an unmarried waitress. At this point, having a baby out of wedlock is, like, practically illegal. Yeah. It's very extremely frowned upon and it's just, you know, blasphemous. So she had very little support in raising him and was forced to give him to the care of Mary and John Sloan, who were a local couple who already had four children, only a few months after his birth. So he was essentially, like, adopted by them, but not, like, officially by Mm. any means. I see. Ian took their family name, so he became known as Ian Sloan. His mother continued to visit him throughout his childhood. Various authors have stated that he did torture animals, which is one of the three things in the homicidal triad, which you talked about last true crime episode. Yeah. But he objects to these accusations, which I don't know if that really means anything, but he says he didn't do it, so... Even though he did have kind of a rocky childhood, he was accepted into Shorelands Academy, which was a school for, quote, above-average pupils. He left this school at age 15, which is just a year before other students did. In England, you go to school until you're 16, and then you can continue to carry on and do your O-levels, A-levels, A-levels. A-levels. Right? A-levels. And so that's your extra two years and then you go to university or you can graduate when you're 16 and go out into the world and do whatever you want. So he left school at 15, so it's not as egregious as it would be in North America. Yeah. Where you're missing three years instead of just one. He began working as a butcher's messenger boy and met a woman named Evelyn Grant, who became his girlfriend. Their relationship ended when he threatened her with a flick knife when she went to a dance with another boy. He, like, she went to the police and he had to appear before the court with nine charges against him. And he was placed on probation on condition that he goes and lives with his mother. 
By this time, Margaret had married a man named Patrick Brady, who was an Irish fruit merchant, and he got Ian a job at the market and also obviously gave Ian his last name. You're a cute little fruit family at this point. A fruit family. (laughs) Ian was caught smuggling a sack of lead seals out of the market and was sent to prison for three months. He was released on November 14th, 1957, and eventually began working at Millwood's, a wholesale chemical distribution company. Hmm. As a teenager, Brady became interested in crime, particularly Nazi war crimes, and the writings of the Marquis de Sade, who um, wrote like some pretty insane books, and was really into like torturous sexual intercourse to the point that you know, in like Criminal Minds, where they say he's a sadist. Yeah, sexual sadism comes from this man. Really? Like that. Yes. Like he's like... Marquis de Sade. The first person who ever wrote about it? Or I think so, yeah. just like, it, that's what he displayed? I don't really know, actually. Okay. okay. Like, that's <laughs> insane that he's the father of sexual sadism. Like, what a... What a claim to fame, right? anyway. He's like super old, though. This was like the 1500s of this dude, the Marquis, oh, was writing this shit. Oh, okay. I, don't, I yeah. don't know why I thought it was connected to, like, Nazi Germany. Ignore. No. I'm it's just, you. like, he was interested in Nazi war crimes and also, like, sexual crimes. Mm. So. I see. Okay. Like, not very good reading material, essentially. Honestly, no. Kind of the worst no. reading material. Yeah. He was also apparently fascinated by the idea by the idea of committing the perfect murder. His co-workers at Millwoods noticed that he read Mein Kampf, which is Hitler's book that literally like outlined what he, the final solution and everything like that. Yeah. Like his whole plan that he wrote before it was like a thing when he was in prison. It's like or whatever, I don't really know. Manifesto basically. Yeah. It's like not ideal. It's not pre-bedtime reading. No. Well, um, it could be if you're looking at it from like a historical <laughs> perspective and understanding like yeah. lunacy in Hitler's mind. But um, yeah, maybe not. I'm pretty sure that's not what this guy was doing. No, he's kind of predisposed yeah. to like being a little bit. Blech. In Yeah. Blech. Yeah. He read a lot of works on Nazi atrocities as well. He was also teaching himself German. So basically he was like, I love Hitler and I'm gonna become Hitler. Which is fucked. Yeah. Like, hello, Mr. Ian Brady. Like, look up to someone else. Literally (sighs) anyone else. Well, within (laughs) reason, but yeah. There's like really much worse that you can get than Hitler. Yeah. There's like maybe like a handful of other people that would be just as bad. Yeah. 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 Whatever. He, overall, his childhood was characterized by trauma and instability, which some say may have contributed to his criminal activities and his criminal lifestyle, whatever. But again, that's, that's a conversation that is way above my pay grade. 
I did a year of university in psychology. I cannot tell you why people murder things. So, yeah. Didn't you want to be, uh, this is a, another tangent, but didn't you want to be a criminologist for a little while? A uh, forensic one? psychologist, but yeah, mm. I did. I thought it would be interesting, but it was like a little bit too sciencey for me. Mm. Um, and I mean that in the sense of like, it was a, a bit too much. Like the psychology classes that I was taking, it was too like hard of a science. Yeah. I'm not a mathematical or scientifically inclined person. So when I was looking into it, I was like, oh my God, let's figure out why these people did this. And then I realized that a lot of it would be like research. Yeah. And like tests and not like, I'm Spencer Reed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plus, I didn't want to go to school for like nine years. Fair enough. I so, feel you. I'm in marketing now. Um, Myra Hindley. She was born in Crumpsall on the 23rd of July 1942 to parents Nellie and Bob Hindley and raised in Gorton, which is in Manchester. Hmm. Then a working class area of Manchester, which is what it just <laughs> dominated by Victorian slum housing. Her father was apparently an alcoholic who was frequently violent towards his wife and children. The family home was in poor condition, and Hindley was forced to sleep in a single bed next to her parents' double bed. Their living situation deteriorated further when Hindley's sister Maureen was born in 1946, and the following... And the following year, sorry, the five-year-old Myra was sent to live with her grandmother, who lived just nearby. Hindley's father had served with the Parachute Regiment and was stationed in North Africa, Cyprus, and Italy during the Second World War. He had been known as a hard man while in the army, and he expected his daughter to be equally tough. He taught her to fight and insisted that she stick up for herself. When Hindley was aged about eight, a local boy scratched at her cheeks, um, drawing blood. She burst into tears and ran to her father, who threatened to leather her if she did not retaliate. Hindley found the boy and knocked him down with a series of punches. As she wrote later, quote, At eight years old, I'd scored my first victory. Ah, yes. Malcolm Intergenerational trauma. We love that. Malcolm McCulloch, a professor of forensic psychiatry at Cardiff University, has written that Hindley's, quote, relationship with her father brutalized her. She was not only used to violence in the home, but rewarded for it outside. When this happens at a young age, it can distort a person's reaction to such situations of life. For life, I mean. Indeed. In June of 1957, one of Hindley's closest friends, 13-year-old Michael Higgins, invited Hindley to go swimming with friends as a lo at a local disused reservoir, but she chose to go somewhere else with a different friend. During that outing, um, Michael Higgins drowned, and Hindley, who was known to be a very strong swimmer, was deeply upset and blamed herself for years afterwards. She, yeah, she was a bright student, and she won a scholarship to attend a Catholic high school. She left at the age of 16 and worked a series of clerical jobs before meeting Ian Brady at Millwood's Merchandising, where they both worked. 
Hindley was initially drawn to Brady's intelligence and charisma, but she soon became involved in his interests in Nazi ideology and violent fantasies. Hindley wrote about her fascination with Brady in a diary, so we know that they spoke for the first time on July 27th in 1961. Their first date was December 22nd of that year when he asked her to the cinema. She kept a relatively detailed diary for most of their relationship, so it's really interesting because a lot of the timeline, even like dumb things, like we don't really care about the first time they spoke, but it's like very written and um, whatever that word is, documented. Yeah. Yeah. Had they turned out to Which be Which is normal, pretty interesting. A normal couple. It yeah. Been, nobody would have ever read it, but it's yeah. handy dandy. with um, Handy dandy. A noteworthy case. Noteworthy couple. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Their dates from this point followed a very regular pattern. A trip to the cinema, usually to watch an X-rated film, and then back to Hindley's house, Hindley's grandmother's house, to drink German wine. Um, over their budding relationship, Brady gave her reading material, and the pair spent their work lunch breaks reading aloud to one another from accounts of Nazi atrocities. That's At this weird. point, Hindley began to emulate an ideal of Aryan perfection, bleaching her hair blonde and applying red lipstick all the time. It was weird. For shizzle. She expressed concern at some aspects of Brody's behaviour in a letter to a childhood friend. She mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by Brady, but also wrote of her obsession with him. So she kind of, like, knew that the tea was not like really very good like whatever was happening was not good but she just loved him so much which will come back to be an important point of her defense because obviously she said that she was a battered wife or a a battered woman and he forced her to do things and all of that So, on July 12th, 1963, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley abducted 16-year-old Pauline Reed from a street in Manchester. They lured her into their car, took her to Saddleworth Moor, where they sexually assaulted and murdered her. Her body was not discovered until 1987. On November 23rd... they abduct her? Um, 1963, July 12th. That's horrible. Yep. On November 23rd, 1963, Brady and Hindley abducted 12-year-old John Kilbride from a market in Ashton-under-Line. Lynn? Line? They took him to Saddleworth Moor, where, again, they sexually assaulted him and murdered him. His His body was not discovered until 1965. On June 16th, 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett disappeared on his way to his grandmother's house in Longsight. Brady and Hindley lured him into their car and took him to Saddleworth Moor. His body has never been found. On December 26th, 1964, 10-year-old Leslie and De- Downey was lured into their car by Hindley and taken to their home in Hattersley where they sexually assaulted and murdered her. They took photographs of the abuse and recorded her screaming for help. Her body was later discovered on Saddleworth Moor. 
Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were caught because of a series of events that began in October 1965. On October 7th, 1965, they attempted to abduct a 10-year-old boy named Edward Evans, who they lured into their home in Manchester. Brady bludgeoned Evans to death with an axe, and a neighbour heard the commotion and called the police. When the police arrived, they found Brady and Hindley in the house, along with the body of Edward Evans. Brady was arrested on the spot, and Hindley was arrested the following day. While in custody, Hindley confessed to the murders of Edward Evans, John Kilbride, and Leslie Ann Downey, and provided police with details about where the bodies were buried in Southerworth Moor. Police began a massive search of the moor, and over the next few months, they found the bodies of three victims Hindley had confessed to killing, as well as those um, of Pauline Reed, who had been reported missing, but whose bodies had not yet been found. Brady and Hindley were tried together in April 1966, and the case attracted intense media attention. The trial lasted for 14 days, during which the court heard graphic details of the murders and the statistics sadistic behavior of Brady and Hindley. Both were found guilty of all the charges against them and the judge sentenced them to life imprisonment, a full life sentence. The courtroom that they were being tried in was reinforced, like where the defense, like lawyers and everyone was sitting, was encased in bulletproof glass because of the uproar that happened because of this case they were afraid that one of the two would be assassinated in the courtroom. Yeah, I I think that's a reasonable concern. Yeah. So, Myra Hindley's defence during her trial for the Moore's murders was that she was coerced and manipulated by Ian Brady into participating. Her defence team argued that she was a victim of Brady's dominance and that he had threatened her and her family if she didn't go along with his plans. Hindley also claimed that she was not present during the murders and that she did not participate in the sexual assaults of the victims. She attempted to distance herself from the most violent and sadistic aspects of the crimes, portraying herself as a passive participant who was trapped in an abusive relationship with Brady. However... The evidence presented during the trial, including Hindley's own admissions and photographs that showed her posing with the victims before their deaths, contradicted her defence. The prosecution argued that Hindley was a willing participant in the murders and that she had actively participated in them. Ultimately, the jury rejected Hindley's defence and she was found guilty of all the charges against her. She was sentenced again to life imprisonment and all of her attempts have been unsuccessful. All of her attempts to appeal, sorry. Have been unsuccessful. Ian Brady did not mount a defence. He refused to acknowledge the authority of the court and declined to take part in the proceedings. Instead, he made a statement in which he declared that he did not recognise the court's right to try him and that he did not care about the verdict. What? Yeah, he's kind of a fuckwad. His That's not even a thing. Like, what is he trying? (laughs) He's a dumbass. You can't just be like, oh, you, legal court, have convicted me of a crime. I deny. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I'm out. Sorry, but no. Like, Like, no heart. This isn't 
This isn't a hot dog contest. Like, <laughs> yeah, very odd. Very odd man. Very odd. This behavior during the trial was consistent with his earlier actions when he refused to cooperate with police as well. Mm. He did not offer a defense, but his behavior and statements contributed to the prosecution's portrayal of him as a ruthless, sadistic killer who reveled in the suffering of his victims. The evidence presented at the trial, including tape recordings, left little doubt to Brady's guilt. Again, he was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to life in prison. They were both given full life sentences, which we've talked about before. It just means that they were sentenced to remain in prison for the rest of their life without any possibility of release or parole. They can still submit appeals, which is different because it's like appealing the verdict. Like, I didn't do this, not, okay, I did this, but now let me out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The judge who sentenced them described the killings as, quote, a calculated, cruel, and cold-blooded series of murders, most of which were accompanied by acts of rape and violence. In 1986, this is after they've been um, tried and convicted and been in prison for a while, Myra Hindley made a confession to the police in which she gave them details about the location of one of the victim's bodies, which was 12-year-old Keith Bennett. He had never been found up to... Like, he had never been found. She provided police with specific details about the location of the grave on Saddleworth Moor, including sketches of the area and an effort to help locate Keith's remains. Despite extensive searches of the area, however, Keith's body was not found. Hindley's confession did lead to the discovery of the remains of one of the other victims, Pauline Reed, whose body was found buried on the moor in 1987. Hindley's cooperation with the police in this matter did very little to change public perception of her as a ruthless and calculating killer, and many people saw it as a cynical attempt to curry favour with the authorities and improve her chances of a release. Yeah. Yeah. Which, probably, yeah. Ian Brady began a hunger strike in 1999, which lasted until his death in 2017. Obviously, like, people intervened to keep him alive that long yeah he was being held at ashworth hospital a high security psychiatric hospital where he was serving his life sentence brady's hunger strike was a protest against what he saw as his unfair treatment by the authorities and his desire to be allowed to die during his hunger strike brady refused all food and medical treatment and his health deteriorated rapidly he was of course force-fed on a number of occasions but continued to refuse to feed himself himself and medical refused medical treatment. Hmm. In 2013, he launched a legal bid to be allowed to starve himself to death, arguing that he had the right to die on his own terms, which is hilarious because he took that right away from all those children. Yeah. However, this bid was rejected by the courts, and Brady continued his hunger strike until his death in 2017. His hunger strike was a controversial issue, with many people stating that he had no right to refuse medical treatment, and he was simply prolonging his own suffering, and just because of that aspect that he did take something from a lot of other people that he, yeah, you know, didn't deserve to go out the way he wanted to. Yeah. Others have argued that he 
had the right to decide when and how he died, and that the authorities should respect his wishes. This case highlighted the difficult ethical issues surrounding end-of-life care and the right to die, and sparked a wider debate about these issues in the UK and around the world. Of course, there was also people who thought he should have been hung from the very beginning um, for his part in the murders. So it was very, like, a divisive point in time. Yeah. That one's tricky, too, I feel like, because, like, a lot of the arguments against the the death penalty a lot of times are like, well, the justice system isn't 100% accurate, and so people are falsely accused, and so people could, in theory, then be falsely executed. But obviously, like, if he's doing it to himself, he's sort of, like, in his own way. Uh, not admitting to it, I guess, but, like, yeah, if he did that out in the world, it wouldn't be a crime. But I guess people may still intervene. Right? He could he could have been whatever. Yeah, Anyways. you could call the police and yeah. be sent to a psychiatric hospital. Yeah. I think, because I hate him, but I think he should have been forced to stay alive and because he doesn't have the right to go in the way that he wants to. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was a divisive issue. Mm-hmm. At the time of the murders in the 1960s, Britain was undergoing a period of significant social and cultural change. The country was still recovering from the trauma of World War II, and there was a growing sense of disillusionment with traditional values and institutions. The Moors' murders, with their savage brutality and sexual sadism, seemed to embody many of the anxieties and fears of the era, that if we, like, went away from the traditional whatever, that kids would die, essentially, and that, like, the human race would become feral, like, anarchists classic i feel like anytime there's any change that's exactly what everybody thinks is gonna happen yeah and it so far has not has not no well (laughs) (laughs) the crimes (laughs) also had a major impact on the public's perception of crime and justice the case highlighted the need for more effective police investigation techniques, as well as the importance of providing support and counselling for the families of victims. The trial and conviction of the Moore's murderers were seen as important milestones in the development of the criminal justice system and helped to establish precedents for how cases involving multiple murderers and crimes, including sexual offences, would be prosecuted in the future. The Moore's murders also had a long-lasting impact on popular culture, inspiring a number of books, films, and television programs that explored the case and its aftermath. The crimes continue to be studied and analysed by criminologists and psychologists and have contributed to our understanding of the nature of psychopathic behaviour and the dynamics of abusive relationships. Hmm. The end. Interesting. Yes. People, we talk, who did we talk about? Fred and Rosemary West, that was yeah. also in the United Kingdom, and that shook people. The Moors murders, I think, maybe shocked people a little bit more. I think it was... A lot of people were disgusted by the fact that a woman was helping, 
Same with Fred and Rosemary West. Yeah. Because at this point, it was definitely like, oh, if you're lost and a child, go and find a woman. Like, women are nice and they they aren't going to do that. Like, that's a man thing. Yeah. Murder's a man thing. And so the fact that there was a woman helping in this crime was really shocking to a lot of the public. Mm -hmm. The idea of children. Um, Moors are like bogs kind of like it's not i'm gonna google because i can't explain it it's like a dry swamp right (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is like a terrible description but like damp sucky in dirt kind of like maybe Mm, yeah rainforesty adjacent kind of thing it's like kind of damp, often used to describe uncultivated hilly areas. If wet, a moor is generally synonymous with bog. So it's essentially like they they not only killed and assaulted these children, they also left them somewhere so out of the way yeah, by themselves. Like... I think that was a lot of, I don't know, because I wasn't born yet, but I think a lot of the, like, outrage came from the fact they were kids and they were abandoned on this moor. Yeah. There's also um, pictures of the two of them standing on their graves, the shallow graves that they put these children in. And they often took Myra's dog up there. The dog was called Puppet. And, like, this was a place that they put their first victim in, like, left them there, and then consistently visited for years. It was, like, their own personal, like, I don't even know. So... That's horrible. Yeah, it was just very gross. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really um, unsettling, I guess, that you can yeah. do that. And then also, like, you know that there is a dead child on the place that you're playing fetch with your dog. Yeah. Like, how do you... Something has to be a little bit loose in the brain to be able to like like be okay with that yeah yeah Yeah, to just like totally separate the two Mm -hmm. Hmm. Ian Brady has actually or was um, diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder as it's known now at the time he was a diagnosed psychopath um, but that was quite a few years, actually, after they were... Um, I think that was, like, mid-80s when he was diagnosed with that. So they'd been in prison for a while. Hmm. But... Yeah. Is the story hmm. of the Moore's murders. You know, I don't think I've ever heard of that case before. Weirdly really? enough. Yeah. Hmm. I can't... I can't think of it. It didn't really... I was surprised. At every turn. Hmm. But sometimes my Sinister mom and dad talk foggy. about it sometimes. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's hmm. the Moore's murders. Interesting. Yeah. And that's the end of season two devious duos. It is. Now we're on to season Thank three. You for tuning in. Whatever we wish. Every season Sunday. three. Whatever crimes I want to talk about. I might do some, like, I find murders to be the most interesting, but if you have a case that you want me to talk about that is not murder, but is still true crime, like, I've been watching a lot of videos on Sherry Papini, who, like, faked her kidnapping. Pretty interesting. And so, like, if you want to hear more about true crime that isn't just murder, then you can leave that in the case report. let us know. Yeah. 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 Thanks for watching. Thank you. Or listening, or however you are taking part in this week's episode. We Thanks. thank you very much for listening to me talking for like an hour. Yay! Bye! Thanks. Bye!